Greetings Lancing Tablets from all at New Life. It's great to be able to come together and share around God's word and we're going to get straight into it. Um, what a word this is. James begins chapter 5 with a message to the rich and wealthy and it's a scathing message. Look at what he says, verse 1. Weep and wail because of the misery that is, a com that is coming on you. Verse 3. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. Okay, these are really scathing words to the rich and the wealthy. And that raises the question for us. Does God have a problem with wealthy people? Well, the answer to that is no, not in and in of themselves. So Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Okay, we need to get this. Okay, God doesn't hate rich people. He doesn't look down on them. Okay, verse 17. This is what God says through the Apostle Paul as he writes to Timothy. Command those who are rich in this present world... Not to be arrogant, not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. So God doesn't hate rich people. He, he does tell them, like everybody else, don't put your security in your wealth. Put your hope in God. And he also, but he does say that in, put your hope in the God who richly provides, provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So God is generous and, and he's been ge very generous financially to some more than others. And that's partly for their enjoyment. But he does say, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In other words, be like every other believer. Simple as that. And so James isn't saying that God hates the wealthy. Secondly, this is not speaking to Christians. Okay, this is speaking to the you know the rich and the wealthy, but not speaking to Christians. Look at what it says. Now listen, you rich, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Right there, he's not speaking to Christians because if you are a Christian, you look forward on the day of judgment not to misery, but to eternal joy. That's what we look forward to. And secondly, he says in verse two, your wealth has right. That's to these rich people. Your wealth has right. Remember, he's speaking about the day of judgment. Their wealth that they've amassed comes to nothing. So it's worthless on the day of judgment. Then it, whereas for the believer, our treasure is in heaven where our, where our treasure cannot corrode. And then it also in verse two says, moths have eaten your clothes. So there they are on the day of judgment. They've had all their fancy clothes. Now, suddenly, they, they, those very clothes that, that gave them status and power and all that sort of stuff, it's like it's been eaten away by moths. In other words, it doesn't cover their guilt and their shame. Their guilt is exposed. Whereas for, for the Christian, God gives us new robes. Good, you know, beautiful robes, white robes, robes of righteousness that completely cover our guilt and shame. So there's a whole load of clues in, clues in there that tell us this is not speaking about believers. So who is it speaking about? Well, verse three, he's speaking about those who have hoarded wealth in the last days. Now, the last days is from the time that Jesus went back to heaven when he ascended to the time that he returns. In other words, we are in the last days. 
It's to those, this message is directed to those who have hoarded wealth in the last days, but not just hoarded wealth in the last days, but who have hoarded wealth in the last days, while in verse 4, they fail to pay their workers their wages. And at the same time, they're not paying their workers their wages, but they're living in luxury, while their workers really struggle just to survive. Verse 5, these rich people are the ones, these are the ones who have fattened themselves as in the day of slaughter. That This is a reference, the day of slaughter, to days of festivity and celebration. And, and for God's people, God had appointed days and feasts um, for, for that purpose. But these people are living like that all the time while their workers, as I said earlier, struggle just to survive. And it says in verse 6, who have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. In other words, the actions of these wealthy people in oppressing and exploiting their workers and the poor results for some even in death. And what James is saying is these people will be held accountable by God as murderers. It, it, this is a message to the church that the oppressor is not getting away with it. It's a reminder to us, do not envy them. Okay, we read in Psalm 73, I'll just, I'll just read a couple of verses from it, but it kind of does a similar thing. The psalmist says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. Why? For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So he said, my feet almost slipped. In other words, I almost got wrong-footed. Because I started to see how the, the wicked, they just prosper. And it seemed wrong. He says, verse 4, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the common burdens of, of man. He goes on to this a whole load of things that, about how he sees the wicked. And you can imagine thinking, you know, what is the point in me following God? He says in verse 13, surely in vain have I kept my heart pure and wash my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted, and every morning brings news, brings new punishments. So he's, look, he's looking at the wicked, they're getting away with everything they're doing, and, and there's this godly man trying to do what's right, and he says, it's all in vain. You know, what does it achieve? And then we read in verse 16, when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply, till I entered the sanctuary of God, and then I understood their final destiny. Suddenly, everything falls into perspective. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors, he goes on. And that, James is doing a similar thing. He's telling the church who are exploited and suffer at the hands of these rich and wealthy that they're not to be envied and that their end is terrible. They are going to come under God's severe judgment. Now this can apply today certainly to a number, a good number, of really big global corporations who exploit people. You've got people working for them in the, you know, down the supply chain in the third world who are dying in sweatshops. That's ha happening all the time. For example, the NHS, our beloved NHS, which I'm not saying it's their fault, you know, it, but the, the fact is they're using scalpels and surgical instruments to make us 
healthy that ultimately are made in Pakistan in sweatshops by children as young as the age of seven working 11 hours a day in really dangerous conditions. God will hold whoever is responsible guilty. People are getting rich out of that. God will hold corporations responsible. He is opposed to them. They will not get away with it forever. But before we you know, leave at pointing them out there, a word to those of us who are believers, who profess to follow the Lord and who are employers. If you're an employer, listen up. It's tempting and easy to become like those corporations in the way that we deal with our employees. So here's a couple of questions to ask you if you're an employer. Are you hoarding wealth and doing all right, thank you very much, out of your employees, and yet you pay your employees the minimum that you can get away with? That's not good fruit as a believer. Do you take every opportunity, if you can, to withhold their wages? You, do you pay them grudgingly? Or are you generous and caring of your workers? Look, if, if you are eat, doing everything you can to squeeze them for everything that they've got, if you don't care for your workers, if you're just using them to get rich yourself and to get as much wealth as you can, if that's you, you really need to repent. I want to urge you, plead with you, repent of that sinfulness. Now it's no good saying, yeah, but Julian, I don't really need to worry, I can get away with this because, you know, this is speaking about those big corporations and people out there. You said it's not speaking about Christians and I'm a Christian. Well, are you? If you're, if, if, if you're treating your workers like that, then whether your faith is genuine or not becomes questionable. You can have no assurance of faith. Jesus said, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do this in your name? Did we not do that in your name? They're going to call him Lord, just like you, just like me. And Jesus said, away from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. I don't want that to be you. And Jesus said, thus by their fruits, you will know them. If your fruit isn't the kind of fruit that God wants to see being born in your life, generosity, kindness, grace, care, then you need to repent and put your trust in the Lord. So James writes this letter to, um, or directs this particular message to these rich and wealthy who are not Christians, but he writes it to the church. In a letter, he puts it in a letter to the suffering believers, in fact, to the believers that are suffering at the hands of these rich and wealthy. Why does he do that? Well, to put it in perspective, as we thought about just a few moments ago. You see, the believers seeing the end of their oppressors, it will help them to live well, even while they suffer. What are the believers to do? Verse 7. This is for all of us. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. So now, he said, until the Lord's coming, we should be characterised by quiet patience. Be patient. This isn't the time for getting everything that we want or that we need or that we think we, we have a right to. Be patient. This is the time for patience. Until the Lord returns, we have to be patient. And then he uses... 
um, the example of the, of the farmer. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You see, he's saying, you know, you've got to be like the farmer who knows that until the spring rains come, the autumn rains, there is no harvest. And so you have to be patient and wait for that joyful celebration that comes with the harvest. Then comes the harvest after the spring rains. The coming of the Lord Jesus is like our spring rains. And then comes the harvest. So now is the time for being patient. If you're suffering injustice and hurt and you've been sinned against in whatever way, this is a time for patience. Here's what we mustn't do, verse 9. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. You see, he says don't grumble because those who grumble, like those rich and wealthy and powerful who exploit the poor, will be judged. Grumblers will be judged. Now by grumbling, he means just moaning and complaining and whinging about your situation. Now, here's the thing. Some of us find it really easy to whinge and moan. Whereas there are some people that you never hear them moaning. They just get on with it, right? Now that's in some people's nature. You see that with unbelievers. Some unbelievers, they never moan. They just get on with it. Whereas others, they're always moaning and grumbling about something. Well, we are not to grumble because we're God's people. We've been born again. And so, so we're told, we're given a couple of examples. We're given the example of the prophets in verse 10. And he narrows down as an example on Job in verse 11 you have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about the Lord is full of compassion and mercy here's what we need to hear okay that God is full of compassion and mercy as you struggle and suffer as you will at times in your life if you're not now to know he is full of compassion and mercy look at how he treated Job how he restored Job you know, Job lost everything, but God restored everything to him. Now, that doesn't mean to say that in this life, God will restore everything. In fact, he's just told us, isn't he, that the, it's when the Lord returns. But as surely as Job received tenfold everything that he had before, so we will experience tenfold the good that we have been robbed of in this life because of the sins of others. So we're to, be, we're to be patient and not grumble. When you look at the story of Job, Job does, it seems, complain at least, doesn't he? But the, Job's complaining was a crying out and a questioning of God, a, a wondering, why is this happening? He didn't understand. And it was an answer to his critics who were basically blaming Job, saying you must have done something wrong to deserve this. He wouldn't have any of that. Okay, But he never just whinged and moaned. It wasn't that kind of grumbling. You see, as believers, yeah, if, you're, if you're the kind of person that never complains and moans about anything in the, in the church, that's great. You're a great testimony. But if you're the sort of person that, that is known for whinging and moaning and complaining, here's the thing. You always have reason to praise God, even in suffering. And so we read in Psalm 103, praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Even while we sinned against and while we suffer, the Lord forgives all your sins. He heals all your diseases. Ultimately, he will. He even does in this life, doesn't he? But um, 
death gets a hold of us in the end. But ultimately, all disease and sickness will be done with. Who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. Okay, so we've always got a million reasons to be thankful to God. And so Paul writes um, to, to, to the church in Thessalonica, Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. In all, so even when we're suffering, we're not to be grumbling and complaining, but be giving thanks in all circumstances. James says in chapter 1, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. Now here's the reason why. Okay, We've always got reason to praise God, even in suffering. But in the suffering even, James says, Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finishes its work. Why? So that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. You know, there's a, that's a wonderful picture. Through your suffering, God is doing something. He's making you whole and full and mature and complete, more like Jesus. And that is a really good thing. And we need to know that in my suffering, God is at work. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away. You can read into that suffering. Yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day, for our light and momentary troubles or sufferings are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them all. And, and so this is telling us again that our suffering, it's not just suffering, it's doing something. It is earning us a way of glory, a reward that far outweighs the suffering. We will be so glad that we suffer because the reward is out of all proportion. And you might say, well, but you don't know how terribly I've suffered. You don't know then what the reward is. It will be, it will far outweigh all of everyone's sufferings who have ever suffered. Listen, brothers and sisters, the Apostle Paul says this, I want to know Christ and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. There are facets and aspects of the, of the glories of our Lord Jesus, of his beauties that we cannot know except in suffering. It's in suffering that we discover the full, abundant sufficiency of the Lord. It's then that he's most glorified because if he's sufficient in my suffering, then he is sufficient always. And so suffering is an opportunity to glorify him. And here's the thing. When we suffer and we, in the way that the Lord calls us to, patiently, having our eyes open to the end of the wicked and, and all those things, when we suffer well, when we've been known for being moaners and complainers, what we're doing is we're demonstrating the transforming power, the transformative power of the gospel, the transforming power of the spirit in your life. Be a testimony that brings praise and glory to God in your suffering. This is what this word teaches us. May the Lord bless his word to our hearts. Amen.